Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Hey, Frank, welcome to the Australian Investors Podcast, mate. Thanks for having me on, Owen. Good to be here. Yeah, it's um, it's great. Like I followed you on Twitter forever, it seems. And I know like 20,000 other people follow you on Twitter. So, uh, and as you're at the time of recording, you're rapidly approaching 7,000 subscribers to your Substack, which is super in-depth um, company research. Um, so kudos to you, mate, on doing that. But also I'm sure by the time we air this, it'll be over that. Um, but maybe for the for the people that aren't in the Twitter Rati or don't follow you already on Substack, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be so interested and, and well known for you know value investing and for small caps. Um, yeah, I guess with the online stuff, started all around the COVID period where I had nothing else to do. So I started to really um, talk about investing more online, um, which I was doing with a YouTube channel. Then I started to focus more on Twitter, um, ex- tried some podcasts out here and there and eventually moved to Substack, which is probably the more suitable type of content for me. Um, I think some of the other types of content, including Twitter, takes away from the investment process where when I'm writing a detailed write-up on a company, I get to spend a lot of time researching companies that I'm interested in, could be potential buyers for me in the future. Um, so, yeah, I do one write-up per month and I really get to dig in for a month straight where in other types of content I never really got to do that. How do you, What do you mean by Twitter kind of takes away from that? Like do you mean just because it's only 280 characters or you, I, I'm just curious? Yeah, don't get me wrong, there's pros and cons to Twitter, but I just mean um, some of what I do on Twitter is promotional, I guess. I'm trying to build an audience on Substack. So I'm writing three threads or tweets in general that I know are going to get attention, which hopefully will filter down to the Substack, which is what I'm really focused on. Um, so I guess it could be a waste of time to do a little bit of research on a topic that isn't going to be uh, create value for me in my investment journey. Um, it's more so just as entertainment, I guess, or just to draw attention, a bit of promotion. So, But there's a whole range of other things that Twitter's great for, which idea generation, the people you meet, um, and things like that. 
I think Twitter is a really, really great tool for. Mm. Yeah, I, I share some sentiments around that, like uh, thinking that Twitter is, I just find Twitter is a pretty cool way to engage in the investing conversation. There aren't too many platforms I've found that are similar to that, like where it's like it's multi-channel, like you can have multiple conversations with multiple people at the same time. Um, like if you, you can, that can sometimes be lost in forums and that type of stuff. Um, so one of the things that we spoke about just off air a minute ago was basically how, like where your curiosity for investing comes from. Um, I wasn't sure how much you would want to share on this, but um, like I'll just leave it to you to kind of share uh, what you want. But I feel like your what you do is like a interesting, I guess, explainer for the way you go about explaining complex investment theses and breaking down companies. Um, maybe I'll just hand it over to you there just to tell us a bit about your background perhaps. Yeah, I guess so. I'll start right at the beginning. I'll go through it pretty quick. But I grew up really poor um, for the Australian audience, housing commission house, um, not the best kind of way to grow up. So I was always really driven by money. I think um, the idea of business and getting rich was really appealing to me my whole life. So I always had an interest in business and the idea of investing, even when I was young and didn't really know what that meant. Um, and then after high school, I went to university and I did my degree in education. Um, my major was in business studies, which is where I really got to dig into um, business overall, but also investing a little bit deeper. Um, and that really just sparked my interest. I think I did Accounting 101, which was the very basics of accounting. Um, and I was surprised myself how interested and engaged I was in a topic like that, that I'm sure 99% of people would find very dry and boring. Hmm. Um, and yeah, and that led me down the fairly typical route of coming across Warren Buffett and all value investing and those great things. So a lot of reading and then I guess it became a hobby or an obsession from there on. Um, and then I was kind of just mostly just ETF investing for about six or seven years, um, flirting with the idea of buying individual companies, buy some here and there, but it wasn't a meaningful part of my portfolio. Um, and as time went on, I kind of uh, really, really focused, put more in time effort to, effort towards it. And um, yeah, I guess that's how I ended up investing the way I do. Um, which now I don't invest in ETFs at all. I am really focused on mostly micro-cap co companies in a concentrated portfolio. Um, and then I guess I share as much of that as I can online as well. Um, there's a lot for me to want to unpack there, but I don't know how, how far uh, we can go into it. But um, why? So this is a really simple one. Why did you choose education? Um I guess not to get too deep and meaningful about it, but my, my childhood was really rough. Um, I won't go into the specific details of exactly what happened, but um, education was really my way out. Um, so I really wanted to pass that back on in any way possible. Um, I didn't know much else. I didn't know the real options available beyond high school. Um, so maybe it wasn't the perfect choice for me, but it was the choice I wanted at the time. And that kind of led me towards the business route as well. And being able to combine the two was pretty perfect for me. And yeah, right. And so, um, so now you teach, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, I've, I can imagine that you, as a teacher now, um, you're super passionate about investing. Like, 
we're recording this at eight o'clock on a weeknight after Frank's um, just put the little one to bed um, just so we could have this chat. Um, and I feel like for a lot of people listening to this, that is probably the sign that you are really indeed passionate about investing, right? Because you probably don't have to do this, right? You could just go and do something else and find your, your mind wandering into something else. So why, like, why do you find investing so stimulating? Um, that's a really hard question to answer, I guess. Um, I, I've just always been so intrigued by it. I've had a thousand different hobbies over my life. Um, I do have an addictive personality. Um, so I've had addictions here and there to little other things, but then investing just really took over where every spare moment I had, whether that's at school, after school, with the family, at nighttime, going to bed, I was just thinking about business in general. Um, so I don't know the reason why. Maybe it's the challenge and like the kind of endless journey of learning. Like there's no one that can know everything about investing. I'm sure my understanding of investing is only a very small portion of what there is to learn. There's always something new. So that kind of um, the possibility of what you can learn and how much you can grow in a million different ways is probably the main intrigue, I guess. When do you primarily find time to, to research? Um, around about this time, at night, when the little one's down. My partner, um, she works full-time and has the kids. So at nighttime, she's studying full-time as well. So kind of the two or three hours when everything winds down, she's doing her study um, and I'll do, I guess, my own type of study. Mm. And it's really interesting that you said you did ETF investing for around about like six years or something. Um, a lot of people that would be in your situation whereby you have the skills to go and research businesses and you clearly have the passion for it would have pulled the trigger sooner. So why did it take six years or why did you wait six years to start direct company investing? Um, I guess early on I really didn't have, well, I definitely didn't have the skill set I have now or the confidence um, for a long time it was all the money I had to my name and it wasn't much when I was starting just out of university. Um, so I wasn't comfortable with a lot of risk. Um, and I don't think what I do now is a lot of risk, but at the time I would have perceived it that way. Um, so it took me a while to kind of have that confidence. And then once I started to mix my portfolio of some indexes and then stock picking, and I was seeing that those were doing relatively well, um, that kind of built the confidence to go fully into what I'm doing now, I guess. Mm. And do you remember what your first investment was outside of an ETF? Oh, I don't actually. Um, it wouldn't have been a good company. It would have been <laughs> something pretty speculative. At the, in those stages still, even three or four years in, I think I still didn't have a really deep understanding. Again, it's not my full-time job. so, um, And I certainly wasn't spending as much time back then as I am now. It kind of built up more and more over time. Um, but I don't remember the exact company. It would have been an Australian company. Most of the investments I was doing were here in Australia um, just because it was easier to do. Um, I didn't even know how to go about international investing at the time, I guess. Mm. Um, so you, you choose now to, to spend a lot of time on micro caps, right? So you've gone from what it seems like a lot of people would go from like ETFs to like blue chip stocks like Apple or uh, Google or, you know, BHP in Australia, for example. How did you decide that, like, how did you get down the market cap spectrum to micro caps? Like, why was that the spot where you wanted to go? 
Well, I think from the reading and kind of study I've done around investing, I think one of the best advantages a retail investor has, particularly a smaller retail investor with not much money, is to invest in smaller liquid companies that the larger institutional investors that I imagine hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, they can't invest in these companies. And um, as someone that's not full-time doing this, I don't see how I could have any advantage over a team of hundreds of investors working together to find the best ideas in the world in the mid-cap and large-cap space. So um, although I do occasionally invest in those type of companies, I want to spend most of my time focused on the companies that I could possibly have an advantage in. Most of the people I'm investing against or buying or selling these shares to and from are people like me, or maybe they're small fund managers that um, are interested in the same types of companies, and maybe they have a little bit of an edge over me just with the time that they could spend. But um, there's other advantages, I think, kind of apply in there as well. But yeah, the more reading I did, the more I was drawn to the smaller side of companies. One of the things that you do on Twitter nowadays is you talk a lot about professional investors and the world's best investors. You even at the time of recording, I know you're doing this like a it's like a World Cup thing where like people can vote on like their favorite uh, investors and they can go like head to head. So whoever gets the most votes then goes through to the next round and the next round until someone wins the World Cup of super investors or whatever. Um, in your early days, like starting out getting information like that was like your only like the only step in your algorithm is get information like learn about investing what were you looking at so you talked about buffett right let's put him and manga to one side what else were you reading like books podcasts videos a lot of people that listen to the show were probably somewhere in that journey right so what did you find particularly interesting um, so it's hard to put Buffett and Munger to the side because really I spent most <laughs> of my early time reading Buffett. Um, I think I read virtually every single um, letter that Buffett put out over the course of 40 or 50 years, whatever it is, plus the Buffett partnership letters, um, which are even more intrigued to me because I think it kind of fits in with my investing style. Um, and I've read a lot of those multiple times. Um, and then just every book about Buffett, I think the Warren Buffett way um, forget who that's by. It might be in the bookshelf behind me, but um, that was one of the first ones that I think really sucked me into Buffett and why he was so great. But um, Snowball, all of those books about Buffett, um, that was really the main learning place for me. And I think it's still the backing philosophy philosophy of what I'm doing. I know everyone likes to say Buffett's their mm -hmm. idol and they learn from him, but it really was in the early days, especially where I spent most of my time reading. Um, and then I guess over time, the, you come across the other super investors around the world, like that tournament you're talking about that I did on Twitter. Um, a lot of those people in there, like the Joel Greenblatt's, Michael Burry, um, Lee Lu, all of those people you come across, um, you hear about how great they are. So I'd go out of my way and read everything and anything about them, listen to interviews that they've done. Um, with some of the newer investors, you can listen to them on podcasts or the speeches they've done. Um, but, yeah. I spent a lot of my time doing that. And in these days, it's a lot of podcasts. I think I consume a lot of investing podcasts um, from all around the world. Um, mm. But yeah, reading is probably the best place. And I, I think Buffett is just the place to start. Mm. Um, it was Hagstrom who wrote that book. I just Googled yeah. it. And um, he's the like author of so many good books, such as like um, Investing in the Last Liberal Art and so on. 
it's a it's a really interesting thing, right? Because um, for me, I started in a similar way, but I started with more, um, I guess, traditional forms of personal finance and, and investing books rather than say straight to Buffett. I started with the intelligent investor, but I find that and security analysis because everyone's like, you got to read this thing, and I found that like completely not friendly for a beginner. I, I read about three or four pages and put it down. I was like, why did people tell me to read this? I, I couldn't even understand it at the point that I first picked it up. Yeah. And that was like me too. I think I got about 30 or 40 pages into the intelligent investor. Oh, maybe I finished that, but I definitely did not get anywhere through security analysis. I was like, whoa, mm-hmm. this is a, this is a beast of a book. Um, it wasn't until it was really like broken down in a really friendly way through things like even though it's criticisms of Robert Kiyosaki, like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and the concepts of building assets then informed, like or built that desire to then go and read the more technical books that kind of went in a way that I thought was interesting. Um, what are some of the podcasts that you listen to right now? I'm going to have a link in the show notes, by the way. Um, of course, I'll plug your own podcast. We'll start with that. But um, my favorite podcast, no offense to you, um, Focus Compounding with Jeff Gannon and Andrew Kuhn. Um, by far, the best podcast, in my opinion, um, in the investing world. Um, Jeff does really well at breaking down some really complex ideas. Um, I guess I'm biased towards that one because those guys will also focus on micro cap and liquid companies like I do. So um, I guess that's the main reason I'm drawn to that. Um, I like Bill Brewster's and Toby Carlisle um, when they do the investors podcast. Oh, sorry, I'm blanking on that one's actually called their show. But on Toby's Acquirers podcast, the show they do with Jake Taylor as well. Um, the Business Brew, which is Bill Bruce's own. Um, Investing with Tom's podcast, who's a friend of mine. I listen to that fairly regularly as well, although he doesn't post too often. Um, they're some of the ones off the top of my head, I guess, uh, my go-tos. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I don't mind the Clara's podcast because uh, Tobias um, and the guys are pretty laid back. Like they're yeah, pretty yeah laid back. I like the entertainment side of it as well. They're not just covering really in-depth ideas all the time. You've got to be able to enjoy what you're listening to or reading as well, which is kind of what we touched on with Intelligent Investor. Um, it, the Intelligent Investor, you can read it two or three times, even when you have an in-depth understanding, but it's boring as all hell. It's very dry. Um, so the I think the information doesn't sink in as well if you're not engaged in something. Agreed. Um, so you mentioned like microcaps before is like a key point of focus for you. And there were a few reasons for that. But I was reading on your Substack about the liquidity premium and you reference a study in there that shows smaller microcap companies uh, tend to outperform medium and large cap companies over time. Pardon me. But one of the things that also comes with that, Frank, is increased volatility. So that study referenced increased volatility as well. So I guess, how do you think about like risk as an investor? How do you, and maybe how has that changed through time if it has at all? Like, how do you define risk, and does that influence what, why or why not you invest in microcaps? Um, so I guess the first thing I'll touch on there is you use two words, volatility and risk, which I don't think are the same thing, and I think that's a big misconception in investing is that if something's volatile, that it's more risky. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's more so the volatility is more associated with, in this circumstance, the illiquidity of the stock. Um, there's far less volume and things happening in these very small companies. There's very few, sometimes only a handful of trades a day, a couple of hundred thousand at most. 
going through some of these really small companies. So um, just because something's volatile, I don't think means it's more risky. And I guess just inherently to micro caps are in some ways more risky than a large cap company. Large caps are large for a reason. Over time, they've grown into, they've had these moats and competitive advantages that have allowed them to grow into a large business. So I guess by nature, there is a little bit more risk involved in that way. Um, the management teams typically aren't more proven, as proven as a large cap company would have. So um, yeah, th there is more risk involved slightly, but I don't think volatility is that problem. Um, if you're investing in microcaps, you have to be very comfortable with volatility. And I don't know if that's a natural thing that I'm comfortable with or it's something that's learned from reading over time. But um, if you can't handle a stock going down 10 or 20% in a day, then you probably don't want to invest in these very small liquid companies because it happens a lot more frequently than it would if you were only buying the biggest companies in the world. Mm. Um, we had one question come through from Jonesy on Twitter, which was like, what do you think influences people's behavior towards small caps? So do you think there's a particular, like in your experience, seeing people operate in this space, do you think there are any personality or behavioral traits that lend themselves to this type of investing? Um, I don't know if I have a good answer to that. I think most people that are attracted to it is for the same reasons that I am. They think there's an advantage they have over larger institutional investors. Um, I think all of the best investors, including Warren Buffett, started in more small and liquid companies. Um, the problem for those investors is that they build up too much capital and they have to move away from these companies. Otherwise, they're just acquiring the whole company or they just can't build a position because of the liquidity problems. So I think most of the people are or the people that are spending a lot of time to market cap and really dedicated believe there's a true competitive advantage as a retail investor to do that. So, um, yeah, I think that's the main reason that people get drawn to it. Yeah, it's interesting. I think once you understand, and I fully agree with your definition of risk, by the way, or what it's not, which is volatility, I think that was just a pretty good stand-in for academic literature um, because we didn't really know how else to think about it. I'd probably define it as permanent capital loss. Mm -hmm. um, but that that's as the business owner slash investor in me rather than, um, you know, I, I, I see the risk in people's faces when they, the volatility rises and people are, then the risk becomes real because people sell at a loss. But if you don't understand business and you don't understand accounting, at least the basics of that, um, I think that's where that kind of the definition of volatility equaling risk starts to ring true. But it's not, I would say, a, a fair uh, approximation of true business risk. Um, I, there was another question that came through on the similar thing. Um, and this is maybe more the question that I'd put to you is like, when you think about small or micro cap investing, would you say that your time horizon or your expected holding period is longer or shorter than if you were investing in say blue chips or mega caps? Um, oh, that's a tough one. I do kind of have two separate mindset when I'm going to investment. Sometimes it's more of, I guess you could call it a special situation um, where it is a more short-term time horizon. And if it reaches a certain price that I have in my mind of whatever intrinsic value might be, then I'm quicker to exit that stock. But for the most of what I do, I do have a very long time time horizon. Um, really, I want to hold my stocks pretty much forever. Um, I'm not kind of a coffee can guy, I guess, where I just don't never sell. 
but I'm a very reluctant seller is I guess what I would say. Um, I'm happy to ride something out. Um, the money I kind of put into it, I'm happy to see how that plays out over a very, very long time period because assuming I were to invest in that company, my thesis is usually around the fact that in 10 years or more, this is going to be a much better company than it is today. So I'm usually very willing to see how that plays out. And there is factors that you have to follow along the way that might change your decision. But again, compared to most people, I'm pretty reluctant to just exit a position. So yeah, I think you do have to have a, I think that's just advantage all around, whether it's micro caps or large caps. Again, institutional investors can't really have that long time horizon that smaller investors can. They kind of have the pressure of outside investors wanting action. Um, so yeah, I think that is an advantage that most investors, particularly retail investors can take advantage of as well. There's this thing, right, that I often think about. I don't know if you've given this much thought. It's like because you mentioned before that big businesses are big businesses for a reason, right? And you were inferring that large businesses have been kind of tested and they have like um, sometimes they're not, you know, they're more than, you know, single-legged stools, if you like, where a small microcap business might have one product, one service, one business line, one geography. And so it's quick to fall over if you knock it off. Um, whereas a big business can survive sometimes some of those moat attacks through time. But I often think about this as being like smaller micro caps. I think to myself, maybe it pays to be a little bit shorter term focused in micro caps because of that risk, because you almost have to be in some senses more sensitive to changes. I don't know if you think about that much or, if you share or do not share that sentiment, but I just feel like that's maybe something that I've become accustomed to is just being really sensitive when it comes to smaller companies, not the, not leading me to sell necessarily, but just maybe I can sway a bit quicker. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. Um, I think you do have to be careful with that because I think that um, can lead to a problem of exiting a position that didn't need to be exited. So um, it depends on your thesis around that company again is where I'd come back to there. But within the kind of smaller microcap world, I think there are companies and they're rare to find that do have these very strong moats that just as strong as a moat as some of the larger companies, the mega caps of the world would have. Um, but it has to be a very niche industry or product or a new product that hasn't existed yet. Um, so that you do come by these companies that you can be more long-term focused on because they do have a moat and they are the market leaders even though they're very small. There was a question that came through from Fire Australia, heck of a name, um, who asked a question about like, when do you choose to exit? And do you let it run in the hopes that it turns into a behemoth or, you know, do you have some sort of strategy for selling down because it's something they struggle with? Then maybe the way we can frame this, and I, maybe I won't give memory to the thing that we talked talked about before we started recording um, and position sizing, maybe if, if you want to touch on that as well. Yeah, so selling is definitely the hardest part of investing, hands down. Um, it's much, I'm much more comfortable going into a position than going out. Um, typically, yes, I am letting them run to see where they end up in a, in a very long time period, but occasionally position sizing matters more than ever before. Um, I have a position in my portfolio that 
that we were talking about earlier, they got up to about 45, even close to 50% of the portfolio. And then it's a position that I've already done well in. I didn't buy it at that size. It just happened to do very well. So it became a large position. Um, but then some of the some parts of the thesis begin to change. It might be something that management do that um, you begin to trust them less of what the vision originally was. Um, in this specific example, it was a company that expands into or had a long runway of growth in Australia, um, and now they quickly moved into international expansion, um, which I think was a risk they didn't need to take, and there's no really advantages over there that they have here. Um, and then some things around corporate government uh, governance that become concerning. So it's not a reason to, for me to fully exit the position, but I'm definitely no longer comfortable having it as almost half the portfolio. So there's reasons like that that come along. Um, the other thing would be extreme valuation examples. I don't think I've had something, I've never probably sold for this reason, but if something becomes um, expensive like Tesla, for example, how crazy that got at whatever point, that would be a reason for me to at least trim a position significantly or exit out of the position. Um, so yeah, sometimes things stop you from having that long-term time horizon, but for the most part, I would like to see it out if I could. How do you um, how do you go about valuing small and microcap companies? Like, you don't have to say there's like one tool that I use all the time, but I guess just a general sense of how you think about valuation in small and microcaps. Uh, I guess over time, I've made it more and more simple. I think a lot of people overcomplicate valuation. Um, and it is a tricky part of investing, but the more I go, the more I learn, the more I keep it pretty simple and think about essentially what are the earnings per share growths over time? What do I think this company can grow at? Um, and then within that, you're factoring in buybacks and all of that type of thing. If they pay a dividend, which usually I don't like to see a dividend being paid, but that's another part of your return. And then the more speculative aspect is the multiple expansion. So if you buy a company at five times earnings, that is, for whatever reason, the best company in that industry, you think it has a moat and a competitive advantage, but all of the competitors trade at 10 times earnings, then I'd be pretty comfortable assuming eventually this company is going to prove itself to be worth 10 times earnings. So you're going to get a lot of your return from multiple expansion as well. Um, I would I'd really push back on being careful with that. Um, but earnings growth is the most important thing, and that's usually what I'm looking at. So earlier on, I would do a pretty typical discounted cash flow. Occasionally, I'll do it just for the sake of it, but I don't rely on them too much. I kind of just think really simply, um, which is something that uh, Tristan Wayne, who we talked about earlier, well, before we're on the show, before we're live, um, who kind of put that idea on me, who I think he got from Shelby Davis, who is one of the greatest investors that most people probably haven't heard of. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's just this idea of, I think it's called the Davis double, where you're just really simply looking at earnings growth plus some kind of dividend plus multiple expansion. And that's what drives returns, and that's really the most part of what I care about. Um, and, yeah, co comparing them to other similar businesses is a really important aspect of that multiple expansion, and I never want to rely on that part of it. It's just a extra bonus upside that could come. So let me just get this straight. So you've got earnings growth um, plus dividends plus or minus the change in multiple. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think that, um, that this this technique, so would you call it a Shelby? Uh, the Davis double Davis by Shelby Davis is where I think maybe the idea originated from, but it is very straightforward. Like it's as simple as it gets. That's what drives returns. Um, so that's what I look at for the most part. Um, yeah, I think this this is a, like there's many different flavors of this model. Um you can use this for other things as well, like not just small micro caps. Obviously, you can use it mm. basically any business. You can also use it for um, this is much like an IRR model. If you just stuck all that in an MPV or you stuck all that in an IRR, you basically get it's basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we're all doing the same thing at the end of the day, right? But I think one time I tweeted something about revenue and earnings growth being the most predominant predictor of long term top quartile or top decile re- returns from companies. And I think you tweeted something a day or two later um, showing that over five years, it's not always revenue growth and earnings growth that is the number one predictor. That, like the shorter time frame you go, the more important the multiple expansion c- becomes as a predictor. I don't know if you remember that tweet that you did, but um, I found that to be quite interesting too. So because basically it reinforces what I kind of believe. I don't know about you, but the shorter your time horizon, the more you're basically speculating on sentiment. Mm-hmm. I do remember that, and I wish I remember the ex- exact study that came from. But um, I remember the rough numbers. Are after 20 years, your returns are driven 100% or rounded up to 100% by earnings growth. Um, earlier on, in the first five or 10 years, it's kind of that 50-50 type range. And again, these are rough numbers, but from how I remember it. Mm. But yeah, the longer you go, the more earnings is the only thing that matters. And um, I guess that's that should be obvious to most investors, but I don't think it always is. Mm. When you're, um, and I think people just love to overcomplicate things, by the way. But mm-hmm. when you're forecasting earnings per share growth, how do you do that? Like, is it as simple as this is what's happened in the past? This kind of my understanding of the business is this. Therefore, I just apply a number. Like, how do you actually practically go about thinking about that? Yeah, that is probably the most difficult part of valuation is thinking about how the earnings are going to grow, but also what the underlying earnings really are. Um, I use what Buffett would call owner earnings a lot of the time, which you're making all of these different adjustments for. And in different countries, there's different adjustments that need to be made. Um, So that's at first you have to kind of figure out what are the true earnings and the earnings power of the business. Um, I do look at the historical aspects of the business more than some people probably do. I know the history doesn't necessarily guarantee future success, but I think it tells you a really big part of the story that can get you comfortable with any projections that you're making into the future. Um, And then following management's track record of how they think the business will grow, tracking that back over five or 10 years of what they were forecasting and how true that was over time so if they've been saying the whole time that the business is going to grow up 15 percent, but it's only been growing at 10 percent, then any forecast they're making right now i'm going to slow that down a little bit as well because they've been wrong and over optimistic the whole time um, usually i like to find the flip side of that where someone is conservative with their forecast as a management team um, and then maybe moving forward that's going to continue to be the case but you can never rely on it so you're also looking at things like Um, The addressable market, depending on the industry and the type of business it is, um, 
a lot of what I'm looking for are businesses that make acquisitions. So I can kind of factor in, are they going to make two or three acquisitions per year? Um, what size are these acquisitions? So I can assume how much earnings growth they get out of those acquisitions. And then you have to add in the organic growth as well, which business to business is always different. But there's so many moving parts within there, and that is the hardest part of valuation. So although I say it's as simple as earnings growth plus a dividend plus multiple expansion, there's a lot within each of those factors. Uh, one of the things that you wanted to talk about was or is acquisitions. Um, would you say that it's more often than not that you're looking for companies that do M&A or would you say, like, would you have any general comments around that, whether for or against? Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily what I'm looking for, but it just so happens for whatever reason, it often is the case that the company I'm investing in right. is dependent upon acquisitions. Um, and it is just more common in micro cap world where they're trying to grow. Sometimes it's the reason why they went public is to kind of get the capital to start growing through some kind of M&A strategy. So it's maybe just what happens in investing in micro caps. But um, yeah, I think acquisitions are a dangerous part of any company's growth. Most acquisitions are value destructive rather than value creative. So you have to be careful on the type of acquisitions they're doing. And it is often hard to kind of tell whether it is going to be a successful M&A strategy. But I think there are some things you can look for um, that will indicate that. What would what would indicate it? So, so a few things that I like, and depending on the business and industry, this will always vary, I guess. But typically for a roll-up type of company, you want a very fragmented market, a lot of small um, businesses, which usually tend to mean that they're trading very cheap. Um, not always the case, but in a very fragmented industry, there's mm -hmm. a reason that not someone hasn't consolidated it yet. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I like a decentralized model of acquisitions where, for the most part, the parent company isn't completely taking over these businesses. They're letting the business owners remain business owners and do what they do. Um, I think if you get too involved, you can force mistakes. And that's not always the case. Sometimes it's better to get involved and make some changes. Um, you need a management team that is capable of doing this. They're, they need to be saying all the right things. They need to be aware of all the same things that you are as an investor of the growth opportunities. Um, preferably, they have some kind of track, re track record of doing this in the past. Um, I don't think I'd ever trust someone that all of a sudden says, we're going to roll up an industry this is what we're going to do until I've seen that they can successfully do it. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be comfortable with mm -hmm. that. Um, and then I guess the price they pay on these acquisitions is one of the most important things as well. So um, if they're doing kind of some public versus private arbitrage where they're public, they're raising capital and buying very cheap companies, which is something like Henry Singleton did at Teledyne for a very long time. That's very appealing. Or if they're just, buying very, very cheap companies and making some type of margin improvements through their business model that makes a once poor business a better business, I guess. Hmm. That's a really great list. I'm just writing it down. And um, so we've got a roll-up in a fragmented industry, the decentralized decision-making, management team with a track record for it and the price they pay. Um, that's like a really thought-out 
like considering you're, you're just answering all this on the fly, it's a really thought out <laughs> and articulated answer, mate. Um, I guess a lot of the companies that I see, I, I, I tend to steer towards organically growing companies rather than um, acquisitive companies, noting that every company has the option to do either, or at least should, right? Um, I, I saw a question come through from Heath, and he said, like, what are some of the key traps that you look for when you're analyzing the microcap space? Like, so obviously you mentioned like thesis is really important and how you do that kind of deep DD. But are there anything, is there anything in particular that jumps out to you that's kind of like unique to micro or small cap companies? Um, I think maybe unique to micro cap companies would be the valuation aspect. Um, these very small liquid companies I believe create an opportunity in the market where these things are inefficiently priced for the reason that people aren't following these companies, but that can go both ways. So if something's very small and underfollowed and there's not too many investors um, focused on this, it could be very inefficiently priced to the upside or downside. So I think a lot of investors in microcap world um, get too excited about quality and forget about that valuation aspect that is a lot more, of a range, I guess, than you would have in larger, more followed companies where, you know, they're usually fairly priced because there's so many people paying such close attention to them. Again, that's not always the case, but more generally speaking, I think that's true. Um, so valuation is probably one of the main traps, I think, in micro caps. Um, and then I think management is just even more important in micro cap world. You need to be a lot more trusting of the management team and usually I would like to see that they're aligned with shareholders um, and own a significant portion of shares, shares so I can trust what they're going to do. Um, yeah, I guess that's some of the things I look out for. When I spoke to Mark Tobin, I'm guessing you know Mark, mm -hmm. Mark Tobin is, yeah. Um, I've spoken to him a few times and uh, one of the things that he's quite keen to talk about is like in smaller micro caps, insiders owning too much of the company so having too much control can actually result in adverse outcomes. How do you think about that? Yeah, insider ownership's a double-edged sword, I guess. Um, I guess that comes back to how much you trust this management team, what's their track record, and what are their incentives to do well. And that's not just from the share price, I guess. Um, it gets to a point where if they have too much control of a business, then that's concerning, but that happens in large caps as well. I guess someone like Zuckerberg who has full voting control over Meta, maybe I'm wrong on that, but I think that's true. Um, it happens everywhere. So you always have to be careful with that and you have to put more trust into a management team when they own a significant portion of the shares. That's definitely true. How did you study a management team? Then? Like other than, so you look at the track record, is that like your number one tell for a management team? Like what have you like, where, where, like where the rubber meets the road, what have you done in the past five or 10 years? Is that the predominant indicator or do you rely on speaking to management or watching interviews? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, probably a combination of three things that I can think of right now. Firstly is just the numbers of what management have been able to do, what kind of returns on capital and growth and things have they achieved through their capital allocation and what types of capital allocation have they been doing? Um, if I'm looking at a business and I think that at this time period they should have been buying back shares, um, they should have been paying down debt, whatever it might be for the specific company, I want to know that in that time period 
time period management were actually doing that. They were thinking the way I'm thinking. Um, and then it would be tracking their commentary over a long time period and how that played out. Um, there's nothing more than a red flag to me than if a company said they can do something and were very certain about it and it didn't come true. Um, so I want a management team that's been very consistent and accurate over time of what they're going to achieve. Um, and then beyond that, it would be speaking to them if I can. Um, often with these very small companies, that's one of the better parts about it is you can get a conversation with the CEO or at least some kind of upper end management figure that you can get some questions answered. So that's always another appeal to these smaller companies that you certainly can't do investing in large caps. Mm. How about if a company's got like a negative return on invested capital, uh, which a lot of smaller companies do? Are you, do you, like, I guess as a metric for judging capital allocation, is that like the primary way that you think about it? Um, it's pretty rare that I'd ever invest in something that wasn't profitable um, unless the underlining earnings were profitable, um, if that makes sense. So, yeah. It's not, I don't have just one metric, I guess, that I focus specifically on. That's just one metric. There's different businesses need different metrics to be followed um, or watched closely. So, yeah, but typically speaking, I wouldn't invest in unprofitable companies. So a lot of metrics like that, if they're negative, um, it's usually a quick pass. Um, but in saying that, I like companies that don't screen well, and sometimes it are these companies that you need to make some adjustments to the accounting that's happened for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, that, that's getting more into special situation territory, which isn't something I think I do as well in, but I am interested in, I guess. Hmm. How do you then, like, so it's not necessarily related to that question, but you kind of touched on it there, which something being a pass. How do you think about uh, like screening and uh, finding companies to invest in? Like, do you, how do you filter the universe? Because like the global small and micro cap universe is a pretty big place, right? Yeah, so I think globally there's about 40,000 micro caps of the roughly 65,000 or so publicly traded companies around the world. Mm. Um, a lot of those would be ruled out just from the market that they're in. Um, a lot of those would come in markets like India or Turkey that we struggle to get access to to invest in anyway. There's a lot of language barriers, um, complications in their political system I don't understand. So a lot of them I can pass for that reason, which narrows it down to roughly, say, 10,000 if you're investing in the more Western markets, which I don't just focus on that. I have um, investments in China, which I know a lot of people probably don't like to hear. Um, but, yeah, I think you can narrow it down just that way, just from where it's located. Profitability will quickly narrow out a lot of those companies as well, and then your list is already getting a lot smaller. Um, and then... If I do screen, which is rare, it's very simple screens like uh, five-year revenue CAGR of like 5 to 10%, something that's growing mm. um, and is in that microcap territory in a country that I'm happy to invest in and is profitable, um, and then I'll kind of go from there. But I don't typically use screens to source ideas, um, but occasionally I'll muck around with it. Um. One of the questions that did come through from lunch investing was how you think about the allocation between microcaps and like say your the Chinese company tech stocks that you've covered in the past. Like I 
I guess my first question, so that's the lunch investing, lunch investing's question. My question would be, like, how do you think about the geopolitical and I guess property rights risk, if you do see any risk there at all? Um, and then maybe how that informs your allocation. I guess just to make my investment philosophy even more broad than just micro caps, um, overseeing that I guess would be something that's overlooked or underfollowed. Um, so sometimes large caps come into that kind of category, which China for the past two years probably um, has certainly come into that where most investors just aren't willing to invest there. So assuming that China can come out the side as a reasonable thriving country that it has been for a while now, um, then there should be opportunities within there. And a lot of those will be value traps. Um, and I'm open to that being the case with some of the companies I've invested in in China. Um, when I go into a market like that, I kind of have an opposite philosophy where I wouldn't invest in a micro cap in China. Um, I'm trying to avoid as much risk as possible because there's so much risk on the macro side of that or the geopolitical side of that. Um, when I'm investing in China, I'm more thinking of, I guess it's taking a Buffett philosophy of focusing on the fundamentals and ignoring the macro, which in most circumstances is true, but China's kind of pushing that philosophy. I guess a lot of people would disagree on Buffett on that one if you're not willing to invest in China. Um, because the fundamentals of some of these businesses, the big tech businesses in China specifically, Tencent is probably the best example I could think of where I think this is a very high quality company um, with a very high quality CEO. I think Pony Ma is probably one of the best capital allocators of all time, comparable to Buffett in my opinion. Um, obviously the time frame isn't as long, but it's moving that direction where he really is one of the best. Um, so you can get these type of companies at a time when everybody is completely unwilling to invest in them, um, there could be an opportunity there. But the geopolitical risks are so real that it could be an absolute zero. So then that becomes a position sizing thing for me where I'm not willing to allocate even close to as much as my portfolio to a position like that. Um, so yeah, position sizing in a market like that is very, very important. And for the most part, you should avoid those regions if you don't want to take a more risk. I think I'm in a unique position, just being relatively young where I can afford to take on more risk. My kind of income relative to my portfolio size is enough where I'm willing to lose certain amounts of money um, and take on more risk for possible higher returns while I'm young. Um, but that all changes over time as well. But I guess that's how I'm thinking about China at the moment. Hmm. Yeah, really interesting. Um, really interesting indeed, mate. Uh, there was a question which I sent to you in advance. Like we didn't script much or really any of this chat, uh, but there was one question which I sent to you in advance, which is you study a lot of like these great investors, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of them, like you said, started out in the liquid or special situations or what have you. But are there any investment philosophies that you've come across or processes that you think wouldn't apply to smaller microcap companies? Maybe if you wanted to restrict that specifically to Australian smaller microcaps. So I think that is a hard question to answer, but what most of these great investors are doing right now is a sim is pretty much the same strategy all around. Their growth at a reasonable price. Uh, everyone from Buffett to Greenblatt to all of the great early investors that I like to study, 
they're doing a strategy that I personally wouldn't want to apply to microcap companies. But at one point, they've all applied a strategy that you can apply um, in the smaller companies. And they still have a lot of parts of their philosophy that they're still doing now, whether it's the long-term time horizon, um, the circle of competence, um, those type or the concentration within your portfolio. Some of those things you can still take from these great investors, but just due to their capital requirements and restrictions, I guess, they just can't invest the way I think they could or should. Um, there's that famous Buffett quote saying that he thinks he could make a 50% annual return if he had less money. And I have no doubt that that would be doing what he did in his partnership days when his returns were close to that, above 30% at least anyway. Um, yeah, I have no doubt that's how they would invest if they had less money. Um, but yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I went, I told a bunch of people this, so I don't want to speak too long on about it, but I, I've gone back and read a fair bit of Buffett stuff lately and it kind of like looped back on me how important the focus on small or private companies has been. And I think for a lot of investors, um, are now realizing that that's a really interesting side. Like we see a lot of institutional money flowing to the private or liquid side of markets um, in search of alpha. Uh, but now I think a lot more investors are thinking about that as like a, a way to, I guess, capture better value for money. How do you think about, uh, as far as I know, you principally operate in public markets, but how do you think about, like private company investing or private equity? Is that something that you could see in your future or in your roadmap for investing? Uh, probably not. Um, I, I like to stay kind of, I guess the word's decentralized in a way. I, I don't want to have much control over the companies that I'm invested in. I want to trust the people to run the companies a certain way. But I do think there is a lot of opportunity within private markets where, again, I think liquidity the more illiquid something is the greater value kind of discrepancy there could be so that could be overvaluation that could be undervaluation but these very small private companies are going to be the cheapest you ever see businesses you could buy something pretty quickly in a local market for one times earnings which is virtually unheard of unless it's the worst business in the world in the public markets so there is opportunities there to be made i don't think it's something i would be willing to do but I am interested in public companies that are taking advantage of that um, and kind of acquiring these very small private companies into their public um, parent company, I guess. Mm. Do you think you'd ever, like obviously it sounds like you thoroughly enjoy what you do day to day, but do you think you'd ever move into professional investing, like move into a capacity where you manage money or anything like that? No, I, I, I think that's probably one of the worst jobs in the world, to be honest. On a, Like what they're doing, <laughs> the, the research that they're doing, I would love that side of it. Of course, that's what I like to do anyway. But I think the pressure they're putting on themselves is pretty incredible. There's not too many jobs where you're really risking a lot of other people's, one of the greatest values in their lives, I guess, besides their, well, money's an arbitrary thing, but it is a very high-risk job that there's a lot of pressure on them. And I think that it affects the way you invest. So I think if someone's doing very well managing money, they would do even better if they weren't managing money. Um, I think there's always going to be things you have to consider in your decision-making 
when there's so much pressure on your shoulders and outside influence. So um, I, I don't think I would like that. I don't think that's just the way I'm built, I guess. Um, I often have friends and family kind of ask for stock tips, but I'm quick to just say buy an index fund because I don't want to have that responsibility of I said buy this and that did terrible. So, mm. um, yeah. How about like if you think about like the Buffett partnership, right? Like that model is it was basically born out of like, hey, I'm going to go do this thing. Do you want to invest with me? Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, I will collect a fee if I do well, but I only want to speak to you once a year. You know, that was basically <laughs> how he operated for so long, right? Like you only talk to me once a year. And if you try and talk to me more than that, you're out. Um, you know, maybe he, he was pretty gifted. Like he could probably do that. But, you know, do you think there's ever a structure which suits like long-term investing, I guess, is the, the key consideration there. Like is there a structural way that that can happen? Yeah, I'm certain there's more favourable structures to do it that way. And I think the early Buffett partnerships are one of the best examples. And there's a few, a handful of investors around that do kind of mimic that or do some type of version of that. Um, and if I were to do it, I guess that's what I would do. But I still don't think it's something that I personally would want to do. Mm, fair enough. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> I know a lot of fundies and uh, I can tell you they're often stressed. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the yeah. pressure would have been unreal. I just, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I'm pretty comfortable losing my own money, but when it's someone else's, I think I'd be pretty guilty. I'd feel pretty mm. guilty about that. Um, and then I'm comfortable with that volatility, but other people aren't. So, yeah, it, it would put a lot of pressure on me being comfortable in that volatility that I think you need to be, particularly with my style of investing anyway. Mm. I just really got like maybe one or two more questions for you. Is <clears throat> One thing I like to think about a lot is like people who tend to be well-read tend to be good investors, tend to be, not always, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and people who tend to be good writers often tend to think with clarity when it comes to investing too. I'm curious like what role you think writing your ideas down in the Substack or wherever have played or even presenting ideas like on YouTube how that has impacted your investing and how you think about it generally, like the pursuit. So I'll start with reading and I think it's definitely, Buffett would say the same thing. It's probably the most important part of any kind of learning. So whether the topic's investing or science or whatever you're interested in, spending time reading is the best thing you could ever do for that. Um, And then putting that idea onto paper or typing it Um, is a way to kind of clarify those ideas, which kind of ties back to teaching. I like to be able to explain things as clear as possible. Um, To be able to explain something, you need to be able to understand it. It's almost impossible to explain something well if you don't understand it yourself. So to ensure that I have an idea um, understood well in my mind, writing for the Substack always helps that. Um, There's pros and cons to it, of course. Sometimes you might fool yourself into thinking that something's more appealing because you've spent so much time researching it because you have to, not just because you want to. Like if I'm mm. I'm trying to put out one write-up per month, um, so if I spend two or three weeks writing a write-up, I can't just switch last minute and not finish it because I don't like the company too much anymore. Um, and I, I don't buy the companies that I write about anyway, or I don't own them at least, when I'm writing about them and posting about them. So... Yeah, I guess it can influence you in certain ways when you've kind of committed to writing about it. But on the flip side, there's a positive of that. 
you have to dive deep into this company so you can explain it well to the readers um, or to your audience. So yeah, there's it goes both ways. Yeah, I like that. Um, I, I really like that. I think a lot of people um, just struggle with that to comprehend that. But I think one, I think explaining and writing is actually a great way to kind of figure out if there are holes in your knowledge as well. So, you know, like that's why it teaches you do tests, right? So you can see where students are at and you can, they can receive feedback on their progress and then they can iterate basically and, and improve on certain things. Um, my, my final question, which is a bit um, different, it's not normally how I end conversations, but I was just wondering, like in your time investing uh, in companies is like, what's been the best investment you've made? And I don't necessarily mean that from like a monetary perspective. It could just be an investment where you've learned a lot. It could be an investment where you're still learning about it, but it could be a counterpoint. It could be really anything. Like what's maybe if not the best, it's one company or one idea or theme or what have you that either worked or it didn't, but it taught you a lot. Um. I would like to say you learn more from your mistakes, but there's not a mistake that really stands out to me um, that, I, that I've made that I think I've transformed the way I invest or anything. Um, but there are some smaller companies that I've done well in. So Kelly Partners Group is a company that I've talked about publicly a lot of times that I've done really well in. And um, the things I've learned studying that company has been applicable to so many other similar types of companies, specifically these kind of serial acquire businesses. So when you really try to understand a company very deeply, which I did for that company and the fact that it was doing so well and generating such great returns, built that interest and intrigue in that company to continue to learn and study it more, um, which then I can then apply to a range of different other companies. And it's not just Kelly Partners Group. There's a handful of others that have done well like that, that I think, um, help me learn and apply to future investments as well. So I think your biggest winners and your biggest losers are where you can get um, the best learning from. I, I just haven't had that really bad loser yet, which I'm sure they come. I've had losers. I'm not going to pretend like every investment is great, but there's nothing. I haven't had anything that permanently hit a zero or something. Um, and I think that would be a really big learning experience of how did you go so wrong? Um, there's little things that I pick up from the smaller losses that I've had, but um yeah, the big mm. losers and the big winners are where you take the most from, I think. Yeah, great. I think that's a, um, a fitting way to end the show, mate. We've covered a lot of ground. we covered basically your journey, um, how you think about microcaps, why you think about microcaps so much and the transition away from ETFs. Valuation, I think, is a particularly interesting thing. Um, I would direct anyone to Frank's um, Twitter feed if you haven't already followed him. Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes. Uh, from there, you can find Substack. Uh, there's some free articles for you to read there. Uh, and we spoke about this briefly off air, but are you still doing videos on YouTube um, with the guys or is that a bit, is that on the back burner? Yeah, so I don't make my own YouTube videos anymore, um, but I do a weekly live stream at Punch Card Investing on YouTube mm -hmm. with uh, four other like-minded, I guess, investors. Um it's more entertainment-based, I guess. We kind of just riff and have fun but talk investing. So that's another place you can catch me. But most of my stuff's on Twitter, um, which will filter you to what I care about most, which is the Lone Wolf Substack. 
Yeah, great. Well, mate, um, I really do appreciate you taking the time out to join me on the show. So, um, yeah, I mean, we've had some great questions come through tonight as well, just from people on Twitter earlier today. Uh, so I do, do appreciate that and uh, all the best with um, Substack and, and growing the, the business. And keep tweeting. Don't go away from tweeting because I, I must admit I do enjoy uh, the 280 characters plus some every time you give it to us. So appreciate you joining me tonight, mate. Perfect, Owen. Thanks for having me on. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.